Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 9. Um, just a couple of things to mention here before we get started. Um, discipleship classes not taking place uh, today or last Sunday, so there we go. Um, discipleship classes will resume next week, next Sunday, 9 o'clock, children and adults. And office has been closed this past week. Office will be closed uh, until Wednesday. We'll open back up on Wednesday of this week because of the holidays. Um, as Larry mentioned in his prayer, annual meeting is coming up January 28th, so very important meeting for you to plan to attend, particularly if you're members, but if you're not a member, we would welcome your attendance. If you're a regular attender here, you really ought to plan to be there. If you're a visitor and brand new, we would love to have you. Uh, really, it is a good way to learn a lot about a church when you go to its annual meeting, so we welcome you to join us January 28th. Um, we will be electing new officers. So I want to make sure that you're all aware of who will be on the ballot. Um, Bob Darby, Kurt Whitman, and David Lowry um, will be on the ballot for election to the office of elder. Zach Whitman and T.J. Dudley on the ballot for election to the office of deacon. So take opportunity to get to know those guys between now and January 28th. We'll have some more information about them for you in the next couple of weeks. Um, but a very important part of the life of our church is electing those who will be leading us into the future. So take time to get to know those guys. Okay. <clears throat> um, very popular phrase that has been um, pretty readily perpetuated and proclaimed in our culture. It's this. Maybe some of you have heard it. Practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Um, there is actually a uh, random kindness foundation that exists, and this group exists to promote change in schools, families, and society through the extension of kindness to others. Um, but part of this phrase is this word random. Part of what they're suggesting that we do is uh, offer kindness in a spontaneous and kind of unplanned way. So we just kind of offer kindness as uh, it occurs to us to do so. And, you know, that might be a, a good New Year's resolution, actually, for all of us to hang on to, practicing random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. But I, I would suggest that there's something better that we could do, and that is that we could practice intentional, purposeful, thoughtful, and calculated acts of kindness. I think that's better, and as Christians, we actually have very good reason to do this, because at the very center of our faith and at the very center of the scriptures is a very unique and special kind of kindness, of loving kindness that runs throughout all of scripture and in particular runs throughout this story that we're gonna read here in 2 Samuel chapter nine. This little story captures the grace of the gospel and the goodness of God's kindness in a special, unique, and unusual way way here in 2 Samuel. So 
Um, let me give you some background information about the book. Uh, we are going through the entire Bible. Route 66 is the sermon series. I'm attempting to do one sermon per Bible book. So we started in Genesis. We're working our way through. We're here at 2 Samuel. Uh, the background information on 2 Samuel, very similar to the background information on 1 Samuel. Um, we don't know who the author is. Some ideas by scholars, but we're not sure who it is. Probably written about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. Um, significant events in 2 Samuel, of course, a little different than 1 Samuel. We've got the death of Saul in chapter 1. Um, we see David finally inheriting the throne and becoming king. And we see God in chapter 7 making a covenant with David. And uh, eventually we see this horrible sin that David commits with Bathsheba, his adultery with Bathsheba, and then the consequences of that through the rest of 2 Samuel. And part of that includes the rebellion of his son, Absalom. And so it's like the first half of 2 Samuel is David and his victories and triumphs. The second half of 2 Samuel is David and his troubles and the consequences uh, of his sin. So... Saul, as you might recall, was the first king given to Israel. Remember last time in 1 Samuel, we looked at chapter 8 when the people asked for a king. And we looked at how the people's motivations for that were not as good as they could be. But they got the king that they wanted. And this man's name was Saul. And Saul comes into the picture as an ungodly, self-centered, ruthless tyrant, basically. And so much of 1 Samuel is about that. And David comes and takes Saul's place. And David is the king, uh, well, a better king that Israel had been longing for. Saul is a bad king, David is a better king, but we even see that the failures of David make us long for the best king. And so this whole book is pointing forward to the coming of King Jesus. But David, there's much to be admired in David. He's one of the most significant figures in the Bible. He's called a man after God's own heart a man who has a heart that is like God. And that is what we see here in this story, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I'm going to read this to you. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, it's a short chapter, just 13 verses. 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. God, would you please open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful good things in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so this chapter, 2 Samuel 9, kind of uh, begins rather abruptly with this question that, that David is asking. He's saying, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? So, um, you know, the first thing I want to consider is why is he asking this question? And it, it, notice as you run down to verse 3 that David repeats the question. Um, he says, is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show, and then he adds this little phrase here in verse 3, that I may show the kindness of God to him. So you, you see that um, David has in mind really not a random, accidental, senseless act of kindness. He has a very specific kind of kindness in mind. It's the kindness of God. That's what gives shape to the kind of kindness that he wants to show to the house of Saul. And so that's what we're gonna consider here today is what is it that makes that kindness unique? And the first thing is this, that it is a kindness that fulfills promises. God's kindness is the one that fulfills promises. So here's how we see this. We're gonna to have to look a little bit at 1 Samuel to understand this. But um, when, when David asks these questions at the beginning of this chapter, he is remembering promises that he has made. So, for instance, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you have um, a conversation between Jonathan and David. So if you look back to, to verse 1 here, um, notice that Saul, uh, excuse me, David says he wants to show someone from the house of Saul the kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan's sake. So Jonathan is Saul's son. David and Jonathan had a very strong friendship, very good relationship. And going back to chapter 20, here is this conversation between Jonathan and David. And Jonathan is speaking to David. And here Jonathan knows that the house of Saul is about to be toppled. Saul is about to be put off the throne. And so Jonathan says to David, David, don't cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth... And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. So Jonathan is basically saying, David, please swear to me that you will not kill my descendants, that you won't kill my son and my son's son, because you would have a right to do that, because we expect God to wipe out all the enemies of David once you take the throne, David. So please promise to me you're not going to do that. So th that's why 
in verse one here, David is saying, I need to show kindness to someone for Jonathan's sake. He's remembering this promise. And we see something similar in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. Because you'll notice in these verses that David is wanting to show kindness to the house of Saul. Now, Saul was a notorious enemy of David throughout his life and throughout the second half of the book of 1 Samuel. And yet, here is this conversation recorded between Saul and David. And again, this is at the end of Saul's reign. Saul knows he's defeated. David has been promised the kingship. Everybody knows David's going to be king. And so Saul says this to David, I know, David, that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So very similar. What Saul is saying is this is not going to end well for my household. David's going to come and probably kill my son and kill my son's son. And so Saul says, please don't do that. And David swore, I won't do it. David makes a promise to Saul. Now that's remarkable. You can imagine David making a promise to Jonathan because they were friends. But here David is making a promise to Saul, his arch nemesis, his enemy. And so in 2 Samuel 9, as this chapter starts, what David is doing is he's remembering his promises. I mean, this is, you know, David's got the throne now. He's in good shape. He's in a comfortable position. You know, it's easy sometimes to make promises because they sound good when they come out of your mouth, but then a few months or years go by and no one remembers and you just kind of wonder if you can get away with it. No one's going to bring it up. Do I really have to fulfill that promise if everybody forgets? But David's like, no, I remember. I made a promise, and I'm going to make good on this promise. And so there's a very important word that shows up, again in verse 3, is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? That word for kindness, the kindness of God, it's a Hebrew word called hased, hased. And it shows up almost 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's a very important word because it tells us something absolutely essential about the very nature of God. It tells us what God is like. It tells us something fundamental about his character. And in fact, in Exodus 34, God even uses this word to define himself. This is God talking about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the word hased. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Hased. It's a hard word to define. That's why it's translated differently here than it is in 2 Samuel 9. It's difficult to translate because it's a complex word that means a lot of different things. And so I think this is a pretty good definition of the word. It's God's committed, steadfast, constant, loyal, covenantal, all-in, promise-keeping love. Hased kind of captures all of those elements, and that's the kind of love and commitment that David has in mind when he says, what I want to do is show the kindness of this God. I want to show Hased kindness to the house of Saul. And the reason why David wants to do this, we can only presume, is that he himself has tasted that kind of love. 
that he has relationship with God. God has shown that kind of love to him. He has received it. It is meaningful to him. It is the most precious, cherished thing in his life. And the natural result of anyone who tastes that kind of love is that he or she wants to show that love to somebody else. I mean, that's a good way to know if you really get the gospel, if you really grasp grace. The evidence of that is that you want to show at least a little bit of that grace to somebody else. And that's what David wants to do. He wants to keep his promises. Hased, a promise-keeping love. Let me ask you, friends, are, are you a promise-keeper or a promise-breaker? Are you known as a person who does what he says, does what she says? Or are you known as somebody who says a lot of things but doesn't necessarily follow through? Here we are, um, about to enter into 2019. This is the time for New Year's resolutions, right? <laughs> we're beginning to think of the things that we're going to promise we're going to do. We might be promising them to ourselves only, or we might be promising them to others. Goals about our diet, exercise plans, reading goals. Um, those of you who are a little older know, probably by now, how hard it is to fulfill New Year's resolutions. They almost always get broken, don't they? They're so hard to keep. It's hard to keep promises. And I'm not going to try to make it look like this is an easy thing to do. It is difficult, but there's comfort in knowing that in the universe there is a promise-keeping love. That this is not something that is absent in our universe. There is one who does it, who keeps his promises all the time. And it's the God of the Bible who keeps his said promises. Here's my suggestion to you for 2019. Maybe before you set forth new promises, perhaps it's a good time to review old ones. Old promises that you've made. Before making promises for 2019, how about reviewing promises you made in 2018? Have they been fulfilled? You know, a good habit for married couples, I think, go back and review the vows that you took when you were married. You know, you made a promise that day, couples. Do you remember the promise that you made? And are you fulfilling it? So it might be a good time for church members to review the promises that, that you made. When you become a member of a church, you make promises. Are you keeping those promises? Parents, have you made promises to your children? Are you keeping them? Friends, have you made promises to other friends? Are you keeping them? It's a good time, I think, before making more promises, let's review our old promises. We have a God who is a covenant keeper, a promise keeper. And while we are always imperfect in our ability to keep our promises, nonetheless, it's important to God. It's something that Christians should be known for, being promise keepers. So that's the first thing, a kindness that keeps promises. The second thing here is we see that this very specific kindness of God that David is showing is a kindness that helps the weak. That's what makes it distinct. We learn something here about Mephibosheth. David reaches out to the house of Saul. This guy, Ziba, comes into the picture. He represents the house of Saul in verse 2. And so David has this conversation with Ziba. And David asks the question, is there anybody in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And Ziba says, yeah, there is a person. His name is Mephibosheth. And at the end of verse 3, he says he is crippled in his feet. So 
you know, why Zeba actually added this little detail, we, I guess we don't really know, but he might be thinking, you know, David, I know you want to do something good for somebody, but, you know, you just ought to know that this is a guy who's, who's crippled. And I just want to, you know, let you in on that. Um, a few chapters earlier, in chapter 4, we learn how that happened, actually. Um, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Jonathan and Saul had been killed at the end of 1 Samuel, and when the nurse in Mephibosheth's household learned that, she became alarmed, thinking if Jonathan and Saul are dead, they're probably going to come here looking for Mephibosheth. So the nurse picks up Mephibosheth and starts running and drops the child. And the child falls in such a way that it becomes lame in both feet. 2 Samuel 4 tells us that's what happened to this young child. Well, this is many years later. Mephibosheth is, is grown up, and he still... Um, has this lameness, this um, handicap in his feet. And so we see something of Mephibosheth's weakness here, his vulnerability, but we see even more actually here because in verse four, when the king says to Ziba, where is this guy, Mephibosheth? Ziba says to the king, well, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, probably none of you have heard of Lodabar. And there's a reason for that. Lodabar is this kind of no-place town. We're not even sure exactly where it is. The idea here is that Mephibosheth is in exile. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in uh, the big city with the king and royalty because the house of Saul is toppled. And now he's in hiding in this place called Lodabar. His father is dead. His grandfather is dead. He's crippled. He has nothing to offer David, politically speaking, he has nothing to offer David. And Mephibosheth knows this. That's why in verse 7, look, when uh, he approaches David, David speaks to him and says, don't fear, I'm going to show you kindness. And then in verse verse 8 says that Mephibosheth said, uh, he paid homage, and then he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is how Mephibosheth regards himself. I have not, I'm like a dead dog to you. You're the king of Israel, David, and here I am with nothing to offer, a dead dog. Why are you showing me this kind of kindness? And here we see another essential characteristic of hesed, this very specific biblical kind of kindness, is that it's a kindness that is extended not to the self-sufficient and the proud, It's a kindness that is shown to the weak and the vulnerable and the humble. This is what sets apart gospel love, biblical love from other forms of love. It's not a love extended to those who can give something back. It's extended to those who have nothing to offer. It's a supernatural love that doesn't even really make much sense when you think about it. What is David hoping to gain here? If there's anything going on here, there's a risk because he actually doesn't know Mephibosheth. For all he knows, Mephibosheth might be plotting revenge somehow. He doesn't know. And now he's inviting this guy into his palace, into his family. There's risk there. There's nothing to be gained. If anything, there's something to be lost. But David is filled with this glorious sense of the love of God and he wants to fulfill his promise and he extends it even to the weak and the vulnerable. We take it for granted, I think, in this day and age that, oh, this is just obvious, you know, what's the big deal? Everybody shows, when anybody sees someone who's weak and vulnerable, our 
tendency is to want to reach out and help them. I mean, that's what people ought to do. And we assume that in this culture, but you know, it hasn't always been that way. In, in history, there are many examples of how that's not how people thought. In the Greco-Roman world, that is, the world about the time that Jesus came on the scene, it was regarded as a bad thing to help the poor and the vulnerable. Because everybody thought in terms of the state and making the, the Roman state stronger, and so in their mind, it's like, why would you help somebody who has nothing to contribute to us? In fact, showing mercy was regarded as a kind of liability. There was a philosopher named Plautus who said you really shouldn't give to a beggar because if you give to him, all you're gonna do is lose what you've given and then you're just gonna prolong his misery. So just let him be, let him suffer. A guy named Rodney Stark, he's a professor of sociology, he's done a lot of writing about the history of Christianity. He says in the very early church, when the church was growing, that mercy was regarded as a character defect in the culture around. It was not considered reasonable to offer mercy to others. People were told to, to, to curb their instinct to help the poor. Don't do it. And later on, then, we see an even more kind of chilling example of this in Nazi Germany, where power was worshipped, and Hitler saw ruthlessness as a virtue, and mercy as a sin, because he wanted to rise to power. He had no time for the weak and the vulnerable. And in fact, in the concentration camps, Auschwitz would be an example. Um, when trains were coming in, bringing new prisoners to Auschwitz, the people would get off the trains, and there would be doctors there looking at these prisoners, and the first thing that they would do is make a distinction between the strong and the weak. Not so that the weak could be cared for, but so that the strong could be separated and put to work and do something productive. The weak were sent over here where they could be exterminated. And often that included children. And it certainly included people with handicaps. They had no time for the weak. It was all about power and ruthlessness. What a contrast do we see here in 2 Samuel Nine, David in a position of great power as king of Israel, and he shows kindness to the weak. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's what sets us apart as Christians. It's what sets apart the love of God found in the scriptures. It's what makes kindness from the Christian point of view not something random, but something purposeful. We are people who desire to show love to those to whom no one else would show love. We have an eye out for the weak and the vulnerable, to help them. You know, the Delaware County Foster Closet is a very good example of, of this. You know, it is housed here in our church. Jesse Smith is the one who started this. I don't know if you saw this, but it was featured on um, Channel 6 News this past week. So we had Channel 6 from Indianapolis in our building this past week on the front page of the Star Press as well. And you know Jesse, she's been here, she's talked to us a couple of times. Um, there are uh, a, a number of needy foster children here and that's why this ministry exists. There are about 120 foster children every month that get assistance from 
this particular service, and Jesse was quoted. She was talking on um, the Channel 6 newscast, and she said, what better way to show love than when the kids are at their most vulnerable place, their most weak place, children with an unstable home and maybe no parents, and she's reaching out with a hased kind of love to those kinds of people. So here's what I would suggest to you. I mean, let's just go back and take this question from chapter nine. This is how David asked, and maybe all of us should ask this question. Is there someone to whom you may show the kindness of God? Is there someone in your life to whom God is calling you to show this kind of kindness? Who are the lonely in your life? Who are the most needy in your life? Are, are there elderly people in your life? Are there widows in your life? Who, who are the sick in your life? To whom can you show this kind of kindness? And friends, I, I wanna remind you of something that, that happens. Every time we gather here on Sundays, that there is an opportunity for this kind of thing. You know, we're out in the foyer after the service and, and we're socializing and fellowshipping and you know, sometimes there's that person who's standing in the corner all by himself, all by herself, who's gonna reach out to that person? Is, is, are you, after church, proceeding out there with an eye toward that kind of thing, thinking maybe something along these lines? Is there someone here to whom I can show the kindness of God? Wouldn't that be a great question to ask every time you come to church on Sunday mornings? I know it's, it, it's, it's easy, we, we see our friends and we wanna converse with our friends and, and that's a good thing and it should happen. Um, but keep your eyes peeled, friends. There are lonely people here and they wanna be re out, reached out to. We should never see a, a lonely person by himself or herself uh, in, in this building. So a kindness that helps the weak, a kindness that helps the weak. The third thing and the last thing is, is this, the, 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 the Unique characteristics that sets apart this kind of kindness. It's a kindness that even blesses enemies. So I, I've been telling you this, that Saul and David, they were arch enemies. And we see this throughout the end of First Samuel. Saul very threatened by David. So Saul made it his goal to try to terrorize David. He chased David around trying to kill him, throwing spears at him. And um, you know, a horrible life for David. I mean, any one of us would probably be filled with hatred and rage towards Saul. Well, eventually, Saul is defeated. David takes the throne. And the most common and expected step for a new king at that time would be to go on a campaign to exterminate and eliminate every single person left in the house of the former king. Because, again, as I just mentioned to go about Mephibosheth, there's always this fear that maybe somebody in that house is going to rise up and try to topple my, you know, my, my kingship. And so there are examples even in the Bible of this taking place. The new king, very naturally, it's an obvious, clear thing in this day and age. What you do is you go and you find the house of the former king and you kill everybody. Now Mephibosheth, again, he's the grandson of Saul. Saul, son Jonathan, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, Saul and Jonathan are dead. Mephibosheth is still alive, the last member of the house of Saul apparently. And so you can imagine what Mephibosheth must have been thinking when he heard that knock on the door. Who's there? 
Someone from the house of David is at the door. Um, Mephibosheth is probably thinking, this is the day that I die. The new king is here. And what an amazing thing. I mean, just imagine the relief that, that this guy must have felt as he hears David say, I'm not here to kill you, Mephibosheth. I'm here to show you the kindness of God. I'm here to show you an extraordinary kind of grace. And in fact, I'm not just saying this either. These are not just empty words, Mephibosheth. Here's what I'm gonna do for you, my enemy. Here's what I'm gonna do. It's listed in verses nine through 13. Verse nine, um, king calls Ziba, Saul's servant, says to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. Everything that Saul owned, his entire estate, David says, I want Mephibosheth to have it all. And on top of that, uh, Ziba, David is speaking to Ziba in verse 10, and he says, you've got sons and servants, and um, in fact, at the end of verse 10, you find out there's 15 sons and 20 servants, and so David says to Ziba, here, I, I want you to get every one of them, and what I want them to do is now work for Mephibosheth. This weak, vulnerable person who didn't have one servant in his household now has 35 people looking after him and serving him and taking care of him. Verse 11, Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, so will your servant do. And then we see this last thing. Not only that, not only does the estate of Saul go to Mephibosheth, not only do all of your servants, Ziba, now are employed in the service of Mephibosheth, but here's something else. I also want it to be the case that Mephibosheth will always eat at my table like one of my sons. Like one of my sons. And can you imagine that? There's David with Solomon, his son, and Absalom, you know, who later will rebel against him, but I mean, these are wise, strong, powerful, attractive people, important people sitting at David's table. And then through the door, hobbles through Mephibosheth, enemy of the house of David, and they pull up a chair for him. Sit down right here. And they get out this bountiful meal and feed him every day. Every day. That's what it says at the very end, right? He ate always at the king's table. This isn't one special event like Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, that he ate always at the table. David, moved by the kindness of God, wants to bless his enemies. Friends, is, I mean, is your heart filled with rage against your enemies? I mean, are, do you find yourself, you just can't get over it, you can't soften your heart, you're just, years have gone by, and, and you just still, you want to see your enemy die. That's just not the attitude of David. And it's not the attitude of the kindness of God, the said kindness of God that we're seeing in the scriptures. What we see here in this chapter, I mean, it's just, isn't it just a beautiful picture of the gospel? Have you seen this? Have you been paying attention here to these elements? I mean, over and over again, this just pictures the gospel. Mephibosheth doesn't come after David. David goes after Mephibosheth. 
He pursues him, and that's exactly what we learn in the gospel. God comes after us, he pursues us. He doesn't wait for us to go after him, he comes after us. Mephibosheth, crippled in feet, nothing to offer David. You and I are crippled in soul. Spiritually, we're crippled, dead in our trespasses and sins. We have nothing to offer God, just like Mephibosheth. We've broken promises, we've neglected the weak, We have hated our enemies, and yet Mephibosheth comes and he acknowledges it, and he just bows down humbly, and he says, who are you to pay attention to a dead dog like I? And that's the best way to come to Christ. You know, you just come to him, and you bow down, and you say, God in heaven, I have nothing to offer. I'm like a dead dog in your sight, but oh Lord, I appeal to your mercy. Mephibosheth, given wealth, Saul's estate, more than he could ever imagine. Book of Ephesians tells us that when you trust in Jesus, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. You are overwhelmed with spiritual riches, adoption into God's family, forgiveness of your sins, justification before his law, the promise of eternal life. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Mephibosheth eats at the king's table. And so do you and I. When we come to Christ, when you come to Christ, when you place your faith in him, you are brought into intimate fellowship with him. And you get to relate to him as a child would to his father. You get to be called an esteemed member of his family. And we all together then look forward to the day when we will all gather at Jesus' table at what is called the wedding supper of the Lamb with the entire family of God all gathered around, feasting together for all eternity. And that is promised to all of you who trust in Christ, just like it was promised and given to Mephibosheth. Do you know this kind of of love? Do you know this God that I'm talking about? Have you come to him and bowed down to him and acknowledged your crippledness and received his riches and entered into his family? That's what this passage is calling you to do if you haven't already. And all of this is made possible, friends, because God kept his promise. He said he was going to send a Messiah, and he did. And Jesus kept his promise also to go all the way to the cross, to do everything that the Father gave him. Jesus did it, laid down his life, and fulfilled everything required of him so that he could say on the cross, it is finished and salvation is done for those who trust in me. Random acts of kindness. Um, That's a good thing. The kindness of God is a better thing. Receive it, live it, and let this characterize all of our lives in the coming year. Let's pray. Lord, We are humbled by your love and your kindness for us. God, we acknowledge that we are not deserving, but you have showered us with abundant blessings. And so we rejoice today, Father. I pray that our hearts would respond well to this, God. This is something to be glad about, something to be happy about, something to to, um, triumph in as we look forward to the new year, Father. So let this sink deep in our souls, Father. And as a response, Lord, make us kind people to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.